Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I've got to say, in some ways, Fort Lauderdale is about as far away from the future of energy as you could possibly imagine. At least that's what I thought initially, you know, when we were going to meet up here. And then I thought, you know, if if you actually do believe in true climate change, this is probably the first place on the planet you'll actually see it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's probably quite correct. We have various estimates. Uh, in fact, they're now done twice a year about projected levels of oceans around here. I don't and, know and, if they're, and they're not improving, are they? They're not improving, and I don't know if you notice this. After the, um, not Irma, uh, the previous major hurricane around here, which was almost a decade ago, which took out a good deal of this street we see here on uh, right on the ocean. They renovated it, but they renovated everything and they put in an entirely new concept in terms of drainage. <laughs> and, and the burn is now much higher than it was initially. The, the what? The, the, if you take a look at where the, the sand actually comes up. Oh, right. Uh, and the reason for that is they're going based on the projections of where the water in a medium storm is likely to end up being within the next 10 years. That is terrifying. (laughs) Uh, And with my property right on the ocean, it's not reassuring. No. Uh, I am uh, having a cup of coffee with uh, Dr. Kent Moores, who's a global energy strategist. He's the executive chairman of Energy Capital Research Group. Uh, We were introduced by a mutual friend, James Robinson, uh, from Robinson Speakers, who, who, by the way, put me under strict instructions to not let you talk about oil futures and to spend most of the time talking about your former career in, as a covert operative. And there's that long pregnant pause you, you warned there, me There's about. the long pregnant pause. It, also, <laughs> it, all, it all depends. It all depends on what it is, Mike, you intend to talk about. You know, I, I think it'll be enough if you just throw the occasional um, mysterious aside, <laughs> non sequitur, as, as we go. I, there, there was the time when, when we had to lose a double match to a clearly inebriated Boris Yeltsin, but as they say, that's another story. Perfect. You know, I've read quite a bit of your um, your writings and, and uh, seen some of your talks. And, you know, one of the things that fascinates me from my perspective, you know, coming at this from, I guess, more the digital and data and AI side is that we're, we've been talking about this convergence for some time between the traditional energy industry and the, you know, the new world of data and, and digital networks. But how close do you think we really are to a profound energy revolution? I mean, given that this has been discussed, debated, and um, fretted over for so long. I think we're closer than most people realize, although you have to be very cognizant of what it is you're really targeting on. Yeah. Uh, When we talk about an energy revolution, the first thing people usually think about is, well, what's what's the silver bullet that's going to wean us from crude oil? I mean, what is that new energy discovery that's going to allow us to just forget about oil? Right. Is and it my, the, sort of the magic, you know, cost per kilowatt hour? That's right. And, and my answer to that is you've, you've asked it, you posed the wrong question, you're going down the wrong road. Right. Every projection, every projection I do, we can push out to 2035, 2040. Two things are very clear in the world of energy. One is demand is heavily moving to Asia. No question about that whatsoever. People have to understand that for the last 15, 20 years, the cost, for example, of oil hasn't been determined in either North America or Western Europe. 
it's been determined in the quote-unquote developing world. Well, the developing world in some cases has developed. I mean, <laughs> do you call China developing or do you call it developed? You call it big? You call it uh, a, a consumer of an incredible amount of energy? What we're going to, so that's number one. Everything's going to Asia. That's where the prices are, de are decided. Right. Uh, number two, we are going to have an expanded energy balance. And some of the elements of that energy balance will be different. That's where the revolution's coming from. But if we go out to 2035, 2040, the three major elements in the energy balance will still be crude oil, natural gas, and coal. Now, for people in North America, where coal is being de-emphasized and coal-fired power plants are being decommissioned and so on, that seems to be a strange thing to say unless you recognize it is going to remain the dominant source of energy in Asia into the foreseeable future. Why? Because there simply are no alternatives. The, the, the population is increasing too quickly. The demand is increasing even higher. There is a algorithm that I set up just for fun that turns out not to be as fun as I thought it would be. It, tends to be a little more realistic and it tends to give me three to six months advance notice of certain things happening. And one of the elements in this whole progression is take a look at the energy demand that is combined with those who legitimately can be considered middle class in China hmm. as also connected to things like um, consumer demands, uh, the rise of, the yeah, rise I mean, of certain the, products, etc. And, and the simple fact that the minute that you know, a household moves up a few tiers, the first thing they go and buy is an air conditioning unit. That's right, that's right. As an aside, I, I know the spoiled son of an individual who is a multi-billionaire in Hong Kong doing nothing other than putting in very bad air conditioning units. That's all they do. <laughs> and they make a fortune off of this. Uh, even in an environment where, while we have private capital that is now encouraged, it's not encouraged to that extent. So it's sort of like being a Russian oligarch in a different kind of environment. Uh, but we're going to end up with a balance that looks the same. If, you if we take a look at the single biggest changes over the next 20 years or so, or 30 years in energy, clearly it's going to be the space that's commanded by renewables. It's, however, and that, that will be even greater if we get into a new generation of batteries. Right. And that technology is absolutely let's, crucial. And let's come back to that. But yeah. I just want to, you know, go deeper on this point about Asia still being very much based on fossil fuels. I mean, China is making a huge bet on renewables and autonomous cars and looking at their infrastructure for distribution. Mm -hmm. You don't think that's going to address the balance? Well, the first thing is we have to understand where the electricity is coming from. Uh, it, is, it is true that the, that the Chinese have made a big push here. They're not going to make, even the Chinese know they're not going to make the benchmarks they've set up for themselves. Uh, those are more aspirational so than anything else. you still think this will be coal-fired generation? They, the Chinese today need to put a medium-sized coal-fired power generator online every week to keep up with demand. Mm -hmm. Now that's with the fact that they have, they have the greatest amount of extractable shale gas and oil of any country on the face of the earth. The United States, by the way, is fifth. We thought we were hot stuff. We're hot stuff because we're the first ones who developed it, not because we, they have a lot more than we do. Uh, they already are leading the world in the next generation of solar and wind technology, um, which is why when the, when the Trump administration decided to put tariffs on solar panels, 
most of whom were coming from China. The immediate, and you may have read what I wrote about that. My immediate reaction was, <laughs> you're going to hurt everybody. Yeah. Because the primary kick-in mm. to the American economy for solar is not with the panels. It's further up the process. Mm. For every one person in the United States who's still making solar panels, you have at least 10 people who are doing something else. It, managing it. So if you make it more expensive, yeah. which is what you're doing here, you're cutting... It kills the whole ecosystem. Our latest estimate is 27,000 jobs have been eliminated over the next six months because of those. Yeah. And that's even without a, you know, a trade reprisal coming from Beijing. Well, well, well actually, you know, um, MIT, um, the technology magazine, they just, you know, they had listed the top five jobs for the future. One of them was renewable technician. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that this is a whole new job category that, that should exist much more complex than I think a traditional utilities job. And it's being pushed in areas that people don't anticipate or they don't, they don't see it until you point it out. Um, when we took a, take a look at the base figures, biomass hasn't improved as much as, it, as we thought it would. Biofuels haven't improved because everybody thinks of ethanol. Yeah. All right. We now have uh, commercial airlines flying daily in the United States where a large amount of the fuel mix is actually biofuel. And, and the easiest way to identify this, every time you have a new installation set up at an American refinery, take a look at what's close by it. It's not unusual now to have biofuel being produced the same place you're producing high-end kerosene, which is jet fuel. Hmm. And you combine them there into an integrated pipeline that, that then moves off someplace else. Uh, these are the kinds of things that are taking place with people almost not knowing about it. Uh, we talk about coal, co-fueled power stations. And that used to be, well, something that can, be, that can use natural gas and coal. Well, I um, gave a, a workshop, unfortunately, it was at Pebble Beach, California. Fortunately, it was to the CEOs of the major power companies in the Western US. Unfortunately, since it was at Pebble Beach, all they cared about was playing golf. <laughs> right. And you could see this because they'd come in for, for the workshop session and, and the bags were directly behind them. And they were, right. you know, for all I know, they were texting their, their caddies or whatever. Uh, but I'd ask them questions such as, um, how many of you now cannot push out your cost projections six or seven years? Nobody. How many of you have a coal-fired power plant in the planning stages? Nobody. Who has a coal-fueled power plant? And I says, okay, what is it? Natural gas and geothermal. <laughs> it wasn't coal. It was, it was in Nevada. So, I mean, right. they were using natural gas and, and, and they're using, uh, you know, uh, simply a volcano. Yeah. You're using the pressure. You're using right. the Icelandic approach to heating everybody's home. The coal-fueled combinations that are being used are, are, are changing. There is a plant outside of, um, where is it? It's in California, anyway which has been up and operating for about a year. And I was brought in as a consultant, not to have anything to do with the plant, but they realized something else. They can do some carbon sequestration there. They can move it by pipelines to relatively old oil fields that are within 40 miles and use it as secondary recovery to bring more oil up. Hmm. So now you're having the coal, uh, the, the, the uh, carbon dioxide being captured at a brand new uh, power plant but it's being used to produce what is a very traditional fuel someplace else. These mixtures are more and more likely. So you've got a, a bunch of, I guess, changes happening at the generation side, but you know, a lot of the more intelligence around energy is gonna come in the distribution and uh, 
I guess, the decentralization. Uh, what are you seeing there? I mean, what, 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 is it, what does it take if you're a traditional utility to kind of reinvent your culture and approach in order to embrace these new ways of working? At the moment, there are, there are ceilings and you hit them rather quickly. Uh, and I can just give you an example. When, when um, solar reached grid parity in many places in the United States, which is essentially jargon for, you can now produce electricity from solar about as cheaply as any traditional source. Right. Now, of course, that depends on what you figure into this and the people who still rely on traditional sources. Anybody, anybody I know, for example, in West Virginia, who's still crying the virtues of, of coal, would say that you also have to factor in some costs that aren't there initially, and let me tell you why. What they found out was this, solar and wind, until we get a breakthrough in major battery technology, storage technology, solar and wind remain intermittent sources of energy. First off, you're not gonna get any solar power for 12 hours out of the day, you know, and yeah. that sort of thing. And you got two things you have to worry about. Number one, you need secondary sources of, ba of, of power. Yeah. So for every, so once, you get beyond you get a peak load. once you get beyond a certain level in solar, you need to maintain more traditional sources even if they appear to be inefficient because you've, you've got the possibility there won't be enough there when you need it. Um, the other thing is that, so that's one cost. People will say you have to actually figure out the cost of maintaining an inefficient coal-fueled generator as a solar uh, expense. Um, but the other thing is, and you do, you, you still have some uh, government subsidies that are involved that people want to figure. The strange thing is, all the people I talk to in the business, they used to be Democrats, they're now Republicans. Right, that's number one. But number two, they, they want to include every ancillary expense for solar, but they don't want to consider all these breaks that the fossil fuels have been getting for some time now. Right. You know, um, and if it's sauce for the goose, it's sauce for the gander kind of thing. But, um, and that's fine because in the overall, ultimately what we end up with, we're gonna need all of them. The key here, the key here, is the ability to as efficiently as possible move from one source of energy to another. That's the real crux. The fact that you have more energy than you need. Where, where, did, where should that intelligence live? Is that actually at the, the point of generation? Well, it should live, well, not so much, with, with electricity, it's easy enough now to have generating facilities that are benefiting from a number of different sources. Yeah. But the second thing you have to worry about with both solar and wind, if there's anybody out there that has a solution to this, you're gonna make an absolute positive fortune virtually overnight. We're getting better at this, but we still have a problem. You will harvest the energy, either solar or wind, as direct current. You must move it into alternating current to get it on the grid, mm -hmm. except for one very small grid in Brooklyn. That's still a direct current that, that Edison set up initially and is still there. But other than that, it's gonna to have to be alternating current. We lose at least 50% of the power that is harvested in that transmission. It's called the inversion problem. Are we gonna see truly a point where everyone's got Tesla power walls and solar tiles on their roof and they're actually feeding energy back into the grid, oh, storing it in their car? I mean, is this yeah. actually gonna play out? There's a, in some places, it's already happening. In South Australia, they're running this experiment. I don't know if yeah, you know. but Tesla won't, and the government of South Australia won't tell you how much that actually costs. Right. So, so that's, but I think it's, for the first time, the, the government of South Australia can guarantee there's no power shortages. And that's yeah. a big development. There's no way around that. It's a big mm -hmm. development. Uh, and Tesla, this is a mega example of a test that I thought was 
very successful that Tesla's been running for some time in Southern California. So successful that Tesla kind of bought out the solar company they were in league with on this. And I think it, I think it holds tremendous future. Uh, I think the future that we see for more and more people, especially in North America, is having greater control over their own energy generation. And this goes well beyond simply putting uh, panels on your roof. I mean, the thing that Tesla was doing in Southern California, the big thing they've serialized now in, in South Australia are these power blocks. Yeah. All right. And, and the power block they're testing in, in Southern California essentially provides enough power for a building or a, a residence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, power walls are a bit different. These are sort of like black boxes. Right. Okay. I've worked with companies that I think have tremendous technology. The difficulty is there's always two difficulties with somebody who has a technological breakthrough. He's always a scientist, can't write a business plan. Right? That's number one. Number two, he'd rather be back in the laboratory. <laughs> he, he doesn't really want to go out and, and he doesn't want to market something. So you, you got to play certain games. And, you know, I started as a theoretical physicist, so I know the attraction of, of looking at the world under controlled conditions. But it's easier for a theoretical physicist because once they hit quantum mechanics, we know everything is pure chance. <laughs> so you can't actually put it under controlled conditions even if you wanted to. But, I mean, you have this situation in which there are some companies that I've worked with that generate electricity through kinetic energy. You, you've got these devices you put on street corners and it generates electricity from passing vehicles. Okay, that, that, that's a kind of interesting circular sort of thing. Um, but but, but do, do you, you know, when you have this future where you have, you know, households with their own um, storage technology and, you know, multiple uh, renewable sources feeding into that, does the role of the utility then change yes. to rather than just being the, kind of the you know the, the raw provider of energy to actually almost like a um, almost like a telco I mean their job is to kind of provide and maintain the network that's right that's absolutely correct and in several places in the United States those who provide the network are now separated from those providing the electricity right so, so you, you, you I mean and, it, and it's I mean they've already for some time split retail away from generation but this is almost a different kind of retailer as well right it all depends on whether you've got net back provisions um, what, what's that? Nevada, Nevada made the worst decision imaginable, and it's been trying to claw back ever since. There are some states now, because of heavy lobbying from utilities, will not allow individuals to sell the excess energy back. Right, right. back into the network. And if you're not able to do that, it destroys the entire incentive. Well, what Nevada didn't recognize is they overnight eliminated their third largest industry, <laughs> which, which was renewable. I mean, this part of the world's really interesting, I think, as well, because it's also undergoing its own sort of thinking about what a post-oil future is going to look like. Um, a, a little while ago, I think I was telling you before, I was in Saudi Arabia, and mm -hmm. it was this... I was at this bizarre breakfast with the masters of the universe. I think uh, the CEO of um, Dow Chemical was there, and yeah. uh, they were they were they were talking about this new joint venture they were having, you know, uh, Sadara. And I guess it's hard to imagine the Arab states without oil or without oil at a, at a higher price. But what is a post-oil Middle East look like? Very interesting. Um, that you should bring this up. I, I'm you know I'm I'm in Saudi Arabia at least once a year, to the point where they no longer force me to live with the other oil people. I mean, I actually can live in Riyadh. Hmm. Um, the last time I went there, or two times ago when I went there, they uh, they gave me a place in one of the new high-rises they had built to get the Bedouins off the desert. And of course, the Bedouins don't want to come, so you got these massive vacancies. Um, and they gave me a floor. 
there, there were three units on the floor. And I said, what are they? He says, you can use all of them. So I put my luggage in one, I slept in another, and I exercised <laughs> in the third or whatever. Um, but the discussion in Saudi Arabia has been going on for some time. You get between two interesting, a rock and a hard place, sort of thing. And the, the good focus of all of this is the uh, minority IPO in Saudi Aramco that ought to be released within the next year. Yeah. And that's, it's 5% of the largest oil company in the world. Of course, they're going to have to give us some real data, which they haven't done since 1979. We don't know how much their reserves are and so on. But here's the strange situation. That IPO will be generating, once you leverage it, a net valuation of about $2 billion. I'm sorry, $2 trillion. Yeah. Uh, it will overnight become the largest sovereign investment fund in the world. And what we've been tracking now for some time, and I have this, this international network of people that I deal with, uh, some of which, many of whom used to be in the other line of work that I used to do. Um, they're former spies. They're former intelligence <laughs> assets. Operative. No, no, no. Uh, an asset is somebody who's a citizen of the other country. You're trying to get them to do something for you. Right. These guys actually did it for their countries. So, I mean, it's... it's Anyway. Um, and they all drink, including the guys from the Persian Gulf. But as they say, that's another miniseries. The, um, the, the thing we're absolutely convinced of, and there's a considerable amount of money that's being put on this already uh, in terms of where the investments are going to be in about a year. The Saudis are likely to become the first nation on the face of the earth to diversify their economy by buying diversifications someplace else. In other words, normally if you're going to diversify your economy, you get new industry and they make widgets yeah. in your home domestic economy. Is this what is this not Norway did, essentially? Yeah, Norway's Although, a little, yeah, Norway's mean, a little different. Fund, yeah. Yeah, their, sovereign, their sovereign fund is the largest. It has just... You're going down the list of things I'm going to present in Windsor, by the way, next week. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Norwegians are the f is the first sovereign wealth fund to say they're not investing any further in what gave them all the money <laughs> for their sovereign wealth yeah. fund. They, they own shares in over 1.5% of all the publicly traded companies on all the exchanges in the world. Now, that's diversification in terms of where your money is invested. Right? Here's what the Saudis are going to do. The Saudis are going to diversify in terms of their revenue flow, which means rather than bringing the widget company into Saudi Arabia, they, they'll buy move. it in Amsterdam, keep it there, but that's how they're going to diversify their economy back home. Right. So right. it's not just about you know, moving uh, further downstream in terms of processing the oil-based products. The first phase. Yeah. That'll be the first phase. The yeah. Saudis are clearly looking for refineries. Hence refinery the Sadara yeah. joint venture. Yeah. Uh, and they're clearly looking for refinery results where in the world they've been poking around the right. American Gulf Coast and so on. Here's the interesting twist of this. The IPO has to maintain as high a value as possible. Right. For that, the Saudis have to guarantee as high a price of crude oil as possible. Because ultimately, the IPO is based upon the net valuation of Aramco. Which means they need to, to, they need to, to restrain maintain, their supply. They, mean, they need to, and they've been overcutting. I mean, if you take a look at what the Saudis are doing, they are they are um, cutting their production beyond what their monthly consignment but, is. But, you know, this is going to create a huge shockwave in, in the industry. But do you see this as something progressive that will take us closer to this, you know, data-driven digital energy future? Or do you think it's maintaining the status quo, given that they need to support the price of oil? That's right. I mean, let, let me tell you something that you may find unsettling. You may, you may find interesting. The oil industry 
is not the most precise industry out there. Its use of data is not the best. Their, their generation of data is not the best. I have a terrible tendency to slow down now so you check your batteries. But there's a lot of wasted... If you talk to, and I, I used to do this all the time, I, I would give my graduate students, for example, uh, v just about verbatim transcripts of conversations I'd have, and I wouldn't tell them who it was with. And they had no clue, you know, and they'd guess, well, this sounds like an oil guy, this sounds like a banker. You know, FSB? Th this, yeah, this, this sounds like an <laughs> intelligence agent or whatever. It turned out they were all dealing with the same oil field, but one was an oil field engineer, the other was an economist. The third was a market strategist, and they're speaking different languages. Not only that, they're looking at completely different data. And so I used to, I, I used to tell graduate students, if you can figure out a way to develop a uh, skill set that would put you in the center of this, <laughs> you could go anywhere in the world at any time and people would need you. The problem is there are literally parts of the industry that cannot speak to other parts of the industry. And so you might say, well, if we find the way in which they use data, that might help. But if you're dealing with apples here, and you're not even dealing with fruit over here, it becomes a really difficult sort of thing to do. So what do you do in a situation like that? You do estimates that are highball and lowball. Right. And you do the reality of the world someplace in between. What do you think is likely to be the most disruptive forces that will change the way that we use and manage energy? I think you cannot discount, you've got geopolitical over here, and you cannot discount the net impact of geopolitical events. People tend to, think, tend to think of, well, you get a war out there and that's an interruption of normal things. And I have to explain to people that a normal is an interruption of normal things. I mean, the geopoliticals, look at what we've got currently. You're not, it's not likely that the Iranians are going to be closing the Strait of Hormuz. If they did, then we'd get you know, $200 per barrel oil in a matter of days. That's not likely to happen. On the other hand, you now have uh, the Houthis, for example, in Yemen that have missiles that have the capability of um, hitting various locations in Saudi Arabia. And I, I just finished a study that was released and I, and I did a small version of that for one of, our, one of our energy services. And the question was, if you want to paralyze the Saudi oil infrastructure, what do you hit? You don't hit um, Ras Tanara, the, the big shipping location. You don't hit the east-west pipeline. You hit eight smokestacks at a location where they take the sulfur out of their oil. If, if they can't take the sulfur out of the oil, the price of that oil they go, that goes into uh, export will collapse. It'll absolutely collapse. Well, they've already got missiles that can do that, and the Hezbollah is kind of intimating they know they can do that and so on. So it gets a little unsavory. We've got the Venezuelan situation. Yeah. We're way, wow, great. Now, hey, hey they've got their own crypto coin. They've got their own crypto coin where each one of them is supposed to equal a barrel of, of uh, PDVSA hard, crude, they don't mention the fact that that, that uh, barrel has already been collateralized any number of times to maintain them. It is so bad in Venezuela that PDVSA was forced, this was Chavez, Chavez was still alive at the time, so it's been the last two presidents, has forced PDVSA to use some of its hard currency proceeds from its export of oil to purchase foodstuffs and import those into Venezuela. And one of my colleagues down at PDVSA were saying, I, I was doing a workshop in, in uh, where was that? Uh, Quito, in Ecuador. And he was down there. And we're sitting around having four or five beers. And he says, you know, I never understood this. I thought I was an oil executive. I didn't think I was running a supermarket. 
We don't know how to do that. <laughs> People have already caught on. I mean, the Russians have moved in and they're buying at very cut rate prices some assets that are kind of valuable at below market price. The Chinese are doing what they're doing normally, and that is they are providing large credit. Chinese are very sophisticated. When I was working in Ecuador, Ecuador was the first OPEC nation to lose control over, over its own oil revenues, lost it to the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese, when they, when they used to get involved in international deals, they would uh, control a, an oil field in Kazakhstan to export the oil back to China. What they've done in this next stage is they provide the government and they provide the national oil company a great deal of, of, of credit lines, of loans. Right? Now they can only pay those loans back through the proceeds of exporting the oil. Now the Chinese are more interested in Ecuador, for example, or Venezuela, selling that oil where they can get the best return. They're not interested in having the oil move back to China anymore. They're interested in as much profit as possible they can make off of their loans. So uh, Venezuela and Ecuador can now sell their oil wherever they want to, but they're not controlling their revenue flow. The Chinese are. And these, these are what I've called the, the, the second stage uh, situation, problems of rentier countries. A rentier country is a country that by and large maintains its budget off of natural resources without using the natural resources to provide any value-added level. So, so I guess, you know, in summary, all of this means that even into 2020, 2030, 2040 and beyond, oil is not going anywhere. It's, well, it, it may actually plateau. Uh, the only reason right now that renewables won't exceed it, people don't understand this. We're not talking about automobiles here. We're talking about electricity. People have to understand that on any given day, the vast majority of the world's population generates its electricity with diesel. It generates its electricity off of um, oil products. We don't do it, it's not cost effective here. It's the only solution. Um, and you've got this vicious cycle that keeps emerging. Nigeria is a great example. I lost a lot of money in Nigeria. <laughs> Ken, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. Uh, thank you very much. No problem. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.